Welcome everybody to the Institute for Government. It's an auspicious day to be talking about defence, the launch of the a new aircraft carrier today, or at least the sea trials for it. Um, uh, very pleased to welcome um, Stephen Lovegrove to the Institute, uh, Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Defence. Um, Stephen spent the first half of his career in the city uh, and then moved to the shareholder executive. He was then the Permanent Secretary at DEC, the uh, late lamented Department of the Environment and, Com and Climate Change. Um, I did a review of um, the change program in DEC uh, while Stephen was there, and we found that uh, it was on a, on a positive trajectory. Uh, so it's regrettable, obviously, that it was abolished shortly afterwards. <laughs> <coughs> but um, uh, it, it does encourage me that um, man uh, charged with responsibility for our defence um, is able to see the future sufficiently well to have got out of deck by then and, <laughs> and to, to become a permanent secretary at the Ministry of Defence. So um, I'll, I'll now uh, invite Stephen to, to make some remarks, after which um, I'll ask him a few questions and then open up uh, to the audience. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. Well, thank you. Daniel, and thank you to the um, IFG for inviting me today, and thank you to everybody who's uh, turned up. Um, yes, I agree. Uh, I was sad to see uh, DEC being abolished, and I'm hoping that I won't have the same effect on the Ministry of Defence. So, um, and I'm certainly not going to be announcing that. Um, quite the opposite. In troubling times, people look to defence. Our troops deployed to the streets, albeit briefly, I'm pleased to say, after the Manchester Arena attack... There were calls from the residents of Kensington and Chelsea for them to do so after the dreadful fire in Grenfell Tower. And even the trooping of the colour just over the road last, uh, ten days ago drew record crowds for modern times. There is, in the long tradition of pride, professionalism and probity of our, of our armed forces and those who support them, a rich source of sustainment for the nation. And there is no doubt that these are uncertain times. As Brexit begins to take shape, Britain will be creating a new set of relationships with a world which itself is transforming in new and sometimes alarming ways. Some examples. Against the backdrop of an ever more powerful and assertive China, Northeastern Asia is unstable in a way that should worry us all. Though North Korea's ability to hold at risk the west coast of America is usually the focus of future concern, and we look to our American allies to lead accordingly, Los Angeles is, in fact, more distant from Pyongyang than London. As Daesh is defeated, as it will be, in Syria and Iraq, it is already moving to what has been described as remote radicalization, exploiting the massive proliferation in connectivity to mobilize the kinds of attacks we have recently seen right across Europe. And most troubling of all, a resurgent and remilitarizing Russia has developed, in unpredictable fits and starts, a risk tolerance for illegal action that has increased year on year, with a particular acceleration, in the, it seems, in the last 18 months. Current attention is directed at Russia's nefarious assaults on Western democratic processes, but these really are a small part of the picture. I have just returned from Ukraine, where they describe the east of their country as the laboratory for Russian warfare, battling the full range of kinetic and non-kinetic activity, including the weaponization of mass migration. These problems have clearly not all emerged in the 15 months I've been at the Ministry of Defence, and many, if not all of them, will be familiar to you. Indeed, they were familiar to the drafters of SDSR 15, identifying, as they did, the evolution of violent extremism, the reappearance of state-based threats, the dangers of new technologies, not just cyber, by the way, and the erosion of the rules-based international order as the guiding themes for the work of defence. But the pace of progression of these threats has surprised us in the last two years, and the Ministry of Defence itself needs to be in the best possible shape to be able to respond to them, and to be able itself to adapt as the threats we confront themselves adapt. Our armed forces are doing this all the time, especially now as they adjust from two decades of expeditionary warfare and counterinsurgency activity. 
The Ministry of Defence, though, is much more than our armed forces. Explicitly, we operate as a whole force by design, where regulars, reservists, civil servants, contractors and industry all have an integral and integrated role to play in creating the entire effect that we seek to achieve. We derive great strength from this approach. The integration of civil servants and military personnel throughout, but particularly in the head office in London, gives us a rounded view of policies, programmes and priorities, makes defence a unique place to work and is the envy of both our allies and our adversaries. There are, though, always improvements to make, and I want to focus today on those we need to make in the head office of defence, and where indeed Daniel and his colleagues at the Institute for Government have been helping us most recently. Main building, opposite number 10 in the Cabinet Office, is the core of head office. Described rather uncharitably, I think, by Pevsner as a monument to tiredness, those who work in it are anything but. It houses and embodies both the Department of State and a military strategic headquarters. It is a world-class crisis management organisation, populated every hour of every day with skilled, motivated, passionate and loyal people whose instinct when things get difficult is to pull together and not apart. But that is not to say that continuous improvement has not always been needed. The Levine Report of 2011 marked the most recent concerted programme of reform and saw us embrace the principle of delegation with budgets and responsibility for delivering fully delegated to the frontline commands and other major delivery units who were then held to account for delivery by me and the Chief of the Defence Staff. Defence knew that it had work, hard work to do in living up to the ambitions of the Levine Report and in making its recommendations real. And we have made great strides in this area. The Levine re reforms have improved the department's efficiency and the way we are able to take major decisions, particularly with respect to investment priorities and the allocation and management of resources. But we need to remain committed to further improving how we work. To do this, we are launching work to reset and re-energise the entire defence model keeping to the central Levine principles, but making sure they are implemented properly and fully and seeking to take them to the next level and to optimise our outputs. To do that, I commissioned a review of the head office at the end of last year. That review highlighted areas that we need to improve, and I want to give you a sense of those now. First, head office is not fully carrying out its role in the Levine defence operating model. We focus too much on short-term crisis management and not enough on long-term planning, determining strategic priorities and cohering and balancing resources between the military commands. Sometimes we have been inconsistent and unclear in our relationships between head office and some key delivery uh, organisations, such as Defence Business Services and the Defence Infrastructure Organisation. Second, we are too rigid in our structures and we are too slow to change them when new priorities emerge. We are often reluctant to stop work even when we should be spending our time on other things. We often prioritise around our organisational structure rather than around tasks and our resourcing mechanisms, both human and financial, do not help us perform with agility. I look at how we have taken forward our work on innovation. The, the Strategic Defence and Security Review identified innovation as a priority and much excellent work has been get done. But we have spent much of the past 18 months figuring out how to cohere and govern the multitude of teams that are working on innovation across the department under different chains of command. The Vice Chief of the Defence Staff, our new Chief Scientific Advisor, Hugh Durrant-White, and I are determined to change that. And third, we have an overly hierarchical approach and often find it hard to delegate to and empower staff. You might think this is understandable for an organisation that has a large military component, but the parts of our organisation that have their origins and roots in the military have better delegation and a flatter structure than we do in the civil service. 
In head office, most grade sixes have three layers of hierarchy between themselves and the permanent secretary, me. That is not in the interests of their skills and career development, and it's not in my interests either. I want the voice of the desk officer, the one person who lives and breathes an issue on a daily basis, to be much more prominent. So today I'm launching a programme, the head office design programme, to implement the recommendations of the review and to strengthen head office. The head office design programme will make head office more authoritative and more inclusive, confident, decisive, knowledgeable, disciplined, agile, creative and outward-facing. And it will bring that, the challenge function that we know we need. There will be a particular emphasis on developing our leaders. Like the rest of the civil service, we need leadership at all levels. And that includes more senior level firepower, with director general and director level posts to drive and deliver against the challenges we have been set. I see those key challenges as follows. We will need to invest in our policy capability. Modern deterrence is an evolving and complex policy area which requires profound analysis of cross-domain threats, capability development, strategic communications, and a deeper understanding of our adversaries' thinking, which is not the same as ours or NATO's. All this needs to happen within an intricate framework of cross-border, multilateral and bilateral alliances, made even more complicated by Brexit. On top of this, we know that we need to be properly configured to provide effective support to the civil authorities and our partners in the agencies when they demand it. Moreover, we will need to devote much more and more expert resource to seeking out and securing the £20 billion of efficiencies we must make over the next 10 years. Notwithstanding our increasing budgets, our ambitious equipment programme will just not be affordable without them. And lastly, in the area of networks and information, we are currently one of the very few developed nations that does not have an expert and authoritative voice at the top table of defence. That must change. Information is an operational domain, and it is a sector and a set of disciplines where Britain has world-leading skills and people. We need to make them a national asset, and defence needs to lead that thinking. To do these things and more, we must be clear that all our people are focused on the priorities. That means taking a look at each post within head office and ensuring that they are all dedicated to the things that we absolutely need to do. We will then be able to take some decisions about rebalancing. And we will need to change parts of the culture and behaviours in head office. We need to be more flexible, more focused on tasks rather than organisation, I want to be able to move people and money much more freely than we do at present, to be agile and to respond as the world changes around us. We need to be clearer about responsibilities and accountabilities in the head office. Our structures and processes should be as flat as possible and the responsibilities driven down to the lowest appropriate level. They must demonstrate that we trust our people and are committed to their development. And we must truly invest in our people so that they can develop key skills and capabilities. Currently, we lose too many good staff. Our staff must feel that they have a career path within defence. We must capture, exploit and keep using their talents and expertise. We're already making great strides in embracing flexible working. We now need to make sure that head office supports that too with modern facilities and technology and makes it a place that talented people want to work. I'd also like to see some changes to the look and feel of head office so that it reflects our approach, inspires our staff, and conveys the confidence that we feel as an organisation. I should say that an indispensable part of that is going to be the full implementation of the recommendations of the Chilcot Report, which told us some hard truths about government in general and defence in particular. We have had a tendency to groupthink. We've not encouraged diversity, either of background or of thought. We've not been as good as we need to be at capturing knowledge and passing it on, running the risks of repeating mistakes of the recent past because we weren't learning from them. We occasionally undervalue evidence and understanding and decision makers weren't sometimes listening to subject matter experts enough and subject matter experts weren't as good as they might have been at communicating to decision makers. 
We have measures in place to tackle these problems, and though progress in some areas will be no doubt slower than we would like, we must not let day-to-day -day crises and priorities get in their way. Improving how we operate and collaborate, improving how we manage change, at which we've been historically poor, and improving how we behave and develop our people are all necessary ingredients in deterring our enemies and keeping the people of the United Kingdom and our allies safe. That is as important now as it ever has been. Thank you. And I'd be delighted to take some questions from Daniel first and then the audience after. Thank you. Thank you very much, Stephen. So I think by the uh, power of modern technology, uh, some of your staff in the MOD are, are watching this uh, as we speak, uh, or, in, or indeed the recording later. Um, so uh, you've talked a lot in, 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 in those remarks about the changes that we've seen in the last few years and the changes that you're trying to encourage uh, in defence. Um, there's been you know, terrorist attacks, there's been a change in, 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 in what's happening with Russia, as you said. Um, and there's now a new manifesto uh, and a new government. Um, is, it, is it time for a new defence review? The DUP has, has supported one, and they're now part of the... Uh, uh, yes, perhaps we'll get part a, D of the majority in a DUP minister in the Ministry of Defence. <laughs> um, I, I don't myself think that there's any requirement for a um, new um, SDSR. Uh, I think the basic prescription of the SDSR was correct in 2015. Um, I mentioned the four things there, which were state-based threats, violent extremism, technology, and the international order. I mean, those are, those are still very sensible um, threats to organize ourselves around. Um, I, I don't doubt, however, that um, we do need to have a um, look at the SDSR in 2015 and just see whether or not um, there are aspects of it which we um, need to tweak. Um, I mean, nobody's crystal ball uh, in 2015 was capable of foreseeing the things that happened in 2016 uh, in particular and, and, and this year too. So um, it would be, I think, irresponsible of us not to um, just refresh it, um, but I don't think we need to have a wholesale uh, um, uh, review. I mean, in particularly in defence, um, in the agencies and the Home Office as well a bit, but particularly in defence, the, the kinds of um, uh, movements in policy and decisions to acquire big bits of capability are um, really, really long-term. Um, they're very difficult to um, change just like that. And it would be extremely damaging, actually, if there was, you know, constantly you were reviewing things. So I think we're in a, a reasonably good shape, but it's, it obviously makes sense to just have a, a quick check and see whether or not some of the balance, some of the emphasis might need to change. So staying with the equipment, um, it was interesting to look at the 2017 Conservative Manifesto and compare it with the 2015 one. So the 2% of GDP was clearly there. Um, but then the 2015 manifesto said that there would be uh, a 1% above inflation increase um, uh, for the equipment plan. And then the 2017 uh, manifesto said there'd be a 0.5% increase above inflation overall in the budget. Um, does that, does that, what does that mean? I think the Conservative Manifesto, um, on the whole, was trying to get away from um, uh, specific targets. So it doesn't surprise me that it um, didn't mention the um, equipment target, didn't mention lots of targets which had been mentioned a couple of years before. Um, the 0.5% uh, real interest, 0.5% um, real growth in the, um, in the defence budget over the next five years life of this parliament, um, assuming that it goes five years, yeah. um, it, it was, a, was a lengthening of the commitment uh, that uh, the Conservatives had made before. 
Um, so on the whole, we took that as being a very uh, positive sign in defence and a, a real indication of the way in which uh, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor and the uh, uh, Conservative administration wanted to continue to invest in, um, in defence. I mean, the equipment programme, the, the assessment of the equipment programme hasn't sort of kind of enormously changed as a result of that. I should say that the 0.5% real um, uh, uh, number is in some ways a more important um, safeguard than the 2% of GDP, actually, um, which we exceed at the moment and we will continue, I think, to exceed. The 0.5% real is a, is a very important uh, staging post for us. Because um, Brexit has led to the depreciation of the pound and, yeah. and your hedging will run out yeah. shortly, I, I, I suppose, and, and therefore there's quite a lot of pressure on the equipment budget, plus the usual risk of cost overruns with large projects. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah, <laughs> Defence certainly ha does have some experience of that, that's for sure. Um, uh, yes, the position with the currency is not in our favour um, at the moment. We are reasonably well hedged for uh, the next uh, couple of years, but if uh, sterling stays where it is, uh, then we'll, we, we will have to um, change some of our assumptions. Um, exactly what that will lead to... Um, uh, is, is yet to be seen because we're not in that place at the moment. We don't feel we're under enormous uh, short-term foreign exchange pressure. So as you said, the other um, striking thing about the conservative, new Conservative manifesto was the disappearance of the number for the size of the army. Um, the 2015 uh, manifesto had a not below 82,000 um, uh, and the uh, new manifesto has this, has this expression about maintain the overall size of the armed forces, including an army that is capable of fielding a war-fighting division. What's that? Uh, <laughs> uh, well, it, 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 the, um, the war-fighting division ambition was, was laid out in SDSL 15, and that, 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 is, that is basically um, an ambition for 2025 to be able to... Uh, get a division, I think, of uh, 50,000 uh, people, not all of them uh, combatants, but uh, 50,000 men and women. And that is still uh, the uh, ambition of uh, the Ministry of Defence. Um, I, I think that the 82,000 or the not 82,000 is really a reflection more of um, some of the things that I was talking about in the speech, and indeed, actually... Um, we are taking through Parliament one of the few things which is not Brexit-related, which is going through Parliament at the moment, which is to try and introduce a degree more flexibility into the way in which we um, uh, field our fighting men and women. So there's been a, a great, um, uh, a much greater emphasis in recent years on building up the reserve. Um, and I was talking to the Chief of the General Staff um, the other day about um, re reinvigorating, revitalising the regular reserve, which is regular um, troops who have, who have left the army but are still um, uh, uh, able to be called up. Um, and to try, and, and his thinking is less around sort of 82,000 now, and it's much more around an army which he could field in extremis of, you know, 130, 140,000 people because. Those are so integral. And, and we do genuinely um, no longer operate uh, this sort of, kind of whole force concept. It's no longer really a concept. I mean, it is a whole force by design uh, now. And only last week I was you know, saying thank you to some of our civil servants who had just returned from theatre. So it is a very, very integrated exercise. And I think myself, some of these simple targets, like, you know, 82,000 or whatever, they're a bit, they have a tendency to be rather reductive in the way in which people think about, actually, how the defence of the realm can be conducted on our part. So, being a bit reductive, I mean, so that means that the regular army will be a bit smaller than 82,000, is, that, is no, that...? No, I don't think there's any great... Um, I don't think there's any expectation whatsoever that... Um, you know, recruiting and, uh, and uh, a retention will not all continue at exactly the same uh, rate. So, no, I, I, don't, I don't think that. I think it's just trying to be m more reflective of the way in which the professional army w wants to be able to manage itself, which is drawing a lot of different types of capability from different parts of the population. 
So let's, let's turn to the change process uh, that we've talked about before. Um, you, um, you had a long list of Aristotelian virtues that uh, we're going to apply to the, the, new, the new head office, uh, which is good to hear, uh, agile and innovative and flexible. Um, you also said that the, the MOD is quite a hierarchical yeah. organisation, the civil service side of it is as well. Um, I, I, I heard the bit about you want to change that, but I didn't hear so much what you were going to do to change that. Could you sort of re replay that perhaps? Well, uh, the, the program that I'm launching today basically is designed to um, get at and build the program of work which is going to make that happen. And, um, Julie Taylor, who's sitting in the, in the front row there, um, will uh, be overseeing that in her role as DG of Head Office of Commissioning Services. But the kinds of things that we're going to try and do is to look at uh, grade structures, and to bring them more in line to, with um, the rest of uh, Whitehall. We're going to try and think about the ways in which uh, information is processed through the organisation. At the moment, like many Whitehall departments, but not, not the most forward-leaning ones, there is too much checking and second checking and third checking. There are too many touch points. Um, we're going to, uh, at the moment, we're rolling out um, an enormous IT pro project called ModNet, um, which is by far and away the biggest sort of, as it were, um, civil servant as a consumer IT project that um, uh, the government has done, which will genuinely change some of the ways in which we'll be able to work. It'll make remote working, flexible working, that much more um, straightforward. And we do need, we, I mean, I mentioned at the end, I didn't want to major on Chilcot because Chilcot was a year ago uh, now and, and we've been over that ground a few times but it, 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 Chilcot has got lessons in there about the way that the whole of the national security apparatus works in terms of the way in which we conduct our conversations, the way in which we um, try and um, analyze situations I and mean, we've done for instance lots more um, red teaming and scenario planning in the last year than we would have done before where there might have been just a tendency well it is going to be this way well you know actually recent history has told us that our easy uh, assumptions and predictions don't usually come out to be the case so there, there's a lot more sort of, kind of flexibility in the way in which uh, we're thinking I mean the other thing I should say is that um, you know, the, the, the MOD is an enormous organisation. It's almost like a microcosm of the whole of the civil service in some ways. And um, it, within head office, my, my feeling, and as I say, shared with shared with the senior by the senior team as well, is that we have um, bits of the bits of the unit where the, the bits of head office which is probably not doing the most important work. And we need to make sure that we've got the best people in the right numbers doing the right work at the right time with the right tools. And that process of moving people around and just making sure that just because something existed a couple of years ago doesn't have to exist now, all of that is, those are m muscles that need to be trained and we, we're, not, um, we're not quite where we need to be on that. As you know, I'm an enthusiast for digital government, uh, and the, I'll just take, take a moment to hold up this report, which we published last week on digital government. Um, and um, I think it's, as, as you've acknowledged, you're appointing a, a new person to head up uh, the digital function in, in, in the Ministry of Defence. Um, and you mentioned that agility as well, and obviously agile has a double meaning in this sense of, of agile um, working in, in digital project management. What, what, what role do you see for digital in the, you mentioned a big IT project, what role for digital do you see in, in, in the Ministry of Defence in the future? Well, it's, I mean, it touches absolutely every single part of the enterprise. So, I mean, it's rather easier to imagine. Actually, it probably isn't that easy to imagine what um, it doesn't touch. But, so, um, I said, civil servants and um, military colleagues need to be uh, capable of using uh, kit, which is sort of kind of up to the task, sort of kind of number one. Um, number two... Um, the any country's um, security uh, security sort of administration, the information that it holds, is inevitably 
not only a source of great power and strength, but it is also a source of vulnerability. Um, and uh, there are no shortage of people in the world, as we know, who want to be able to get in and look at our uh, information, the information that is held um, by our supply chain, um, the information that is held by our advisors. I mean, this is an extremely complicated and very turbulent um, area, and we need to make absolutely sure that in terms of defensive cyber, we are as good as anybody in the world, if not better. Um, I think we are reasonably good, but I, have, I am completely n uncomplacent on that particular uh, subject. Um, I mean, an example a few years ago was when the Office of Personnel Management in, um, in, in America was hacked. It was amazing, yeah. And, you know, that brought an end to a lot of people's careers, and yeah. I don't want to be one of a British example <laughs> of that. Um, but seriously, I mean, a lot of CIA agents felt that they could no longer do their job and they yeah. had to leave. So yeah. that is, yeah. you know, I mean, that's a, that's a tangible example, but there are many others as well. So we're a big organization. We've got lots of touch points with the outside world. We need to make sure that we are doing as well as we possibly can on that front. Um, we clearly need to um, uh, develop our um, abilities in offensive cyber as well. And we also, I think, need to develop our doctrine in offensive cyber. I think that's an area where there is considerable uh, more work to be done. Um, we uh, have a lot of organizations who um, uh, run, have, have their own CIOs. Um, so Defense uh, Business Services has its own CIO. DSTL has its own CIO, DENS has its own CIO. Um, we need to make sure that actually those systems are, um, you know, running to the equivalent standards um, and uh, not creating vulnerabilities, and indeed not creating lots of cost in the system that um, we can get rid of. So there's an enormous amount of um, uh, material for somebody to get their teeth into. And as I say, I mean, it is it is noticeable that up until now. Uh, we have been pretty much the only uh, Western nation which does not have somebody trying to cohere that whole um, that whole area together at the top table. Okay, my last question before we open up to the audience. Um, you and I have been at meetings with very senior military folks where every single person in the room was a man, including the people sitting behind the very senior people. Um, I think they were pretty much educated in the same sort of way. They pretty much all had Labradors um, and nothing wrong with Labradors, but um, what, 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 you know, so you, you did mention need for diversity of thought and, and more general diversity, partly as a response to Chilcot, but can you say a bit more about tangibly what's going to be done on that, including on the military side? Well, the military side has got um, specific targets. Um, I think it's 10% um, of intake by 2020 um, should be uh, female, I think that's right, and um, uh, there are um, ethnic diversity targets uh, as well. So there are the, 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 um, the air marshals, the admirals, the generals are, are thinking about that um, hard, and they know that um, the Army and the Navy and the Air Force needs to be representative of the country that it is protecting and it will begin to lose legitimacy if it, if it doesn't do that. So um, that, that is a sort of kind of main effort for, for them. Within head office, um, uh, I think we have really um, uh, dropped that particular ball, actually. We don't have um, uh, some of the more obvious reasons for that everybody should sort of kind of look quite so much like me, although probably not quite as big. Um, uh, you know, there, there is absolutely no reason why um, the diversity uh, statistics amongst the civil servants in head office are um, as low as they are, to be honest. I mean, they are worse than, um, uh, I think, pretty much every other government department. And I think that, that we've just sort of kind of taken our eye off that particular ball. And I, it's, there are lots of different reasons why that's not a good idea. Um, one of them is... Um, legitimacy, as I said. One of them is um, uh, it is clearly the simple unfairness of it. But w one of them is actually that we are not getting the kinds of perspectives and not getting the kinds of talent that we could be getting in defence. 
by being quite so um, unimaginative in the way in which we recruit and promote. And we've really got to, we've really got to do that. Now, the DEC, actually, my previous department, was also quite bad at this when I arrived. And by the, <laughs> by the time it was abolished, no. Um, <laughs> by, by the time um, it took over beers, as I like to call it, <laughs> um, um, it, um, uh, it, it we, we made quite a lot of progress, a lot of progress, in fact, actually. And I'm hoping that where it might be a little bit more difficult to move the MOD, we'll be able to, we will be able to do that. Thanks very much. So um, I'm now going to open up to the audience. Please say who you are. Uh, please wait for the microphone. Uh, and I'll start with you, sir, and then go there. Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you. Um, my name's David Banks. I work with uh, a load of retired um, senior officers uh, looking into policy. And um, one thing that we're really concerned about at the moment is the way that the UK is being placed right in the middle of all the EU Defence Union plans. And these plans are, I'm sure, unknown to 99% of the people here um, because they're just not talked about. They haven't been mentioned in Parliament. And they involve deep, broad-ranging policy commitments for the UK years beyond Brexit. And they are creating some, some stirs among uh, the senior officers that I speak to. Not a single MP has even discussed it in Parliament, let alone voted on it, why is that happening? What on earth is going on? And please, can you tell us that you're going to do something to address that and redress the problems that we're facing, which are going to lock us in for years? Thank you. Um, let's take this question as well. Uh, I'm David Walker from uh, Guardian Public. Um, it's the case, and it's no criticism, that the uh, centrality that the MOD had in Whitehall once upon a time has given way to, let's face it, a kind of marginal position. And debates go on in the rest of Whitehall in which the MOD has ceased to be noticeably uh, a player. Yet, the logic of your analysis of the threats now facing the United Kingdom, the domestication of uh, terror, the merging of international versus domestic technology suggests that as we go forward, the MOD must surely become once again a much more central department in our central government. Okay, thank you. Um, the, the point about whether or not uh, politicians are discussing uh, uh, the deeper and finer points of defence policy is, I, I, think a, I think, a good one. I mean, ultimately, it's for them as what they, they want to uh, discuss. But I think it's, it is probably the case that um, uh, more time should be spent um, uh, by uh, elected leaders thinking about some of these issues. This is, a, this is a, as I said at the beginning, it's a complicated world, it's a turbulent world at the moment, and we need to get our defence posture um, right. In terms of Britain's um, uh, interwovenness with um, EU uh, military structures, I, I'm afraid I don't quite uh, share the analysis that you have. And, of course, we are part of Europe, and of course we will continue to um, uh, play a, a, a very real and full part with our uh, European partners, particularly the French, um, in um, you know, protecting uh, the North Atlantic region and other parts of the world that we feel where we, uh, we, we, have, a, we have an interest and we need to. But the reality is that hugely overwhelmingly um, our multilateral um, approach is defined and dictated by activities within NATO. I mean, that is where all of the action is. Um, and, uh, you know, we are, one of the things we're trying to do at the moment is to, uh, while well, we look inwards at ourselves a bit, we are also trying to make sure that NATO is a more flexible and adaptive and responsive organizations that it can continue to uh, play the role that it has played historically um, and we certainly don't want to uh, see uh, EU um, uh, structures emerge which start duplicating and co complicating uh, NATO and that has been the case for a very long time now clearly some of our some of our voices, uh, some, of the, some of the things we might want to say may fall on slightly different ground when we actually have left the EU, and that is something we'll have to play out. But it will still be NATO, so I, I, I don't quite 
recognise the, um, the the picture that you you paint. Uh, uh, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You've made your point. You've made your point. Thank you. Thank you. You've made your point. Okay. Um, David's question. Uh, 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 the point about the... Uh, I, I put, do absolutely agree with you on the centrality of the Ministry of Defence, though. Um, when I joined um, the uh, department, um, uh, the then Prime Minister um, and um, the Secretary of State uh, uh, for Defence and the Cabinet Secretary all... Um, said that they wanted to uh, make sure that the policy voice of defence was um, more prominent in the discussions that were um, being had around um, government. And, you know, I've tried to do as much of that as I can. And one of the things that I am trying to do with this set of um, reforms is to actually increase the amount of uh, policy uh, analysis and heft that we have. But we do have a, a different type of system now, obviously, with the um, NSC and the NSCO. And so there are different mechanisms within Whitehall to engage in. But uh, I completely agree with you. I mean, in the face of what we are seeing at the, at the moment in the world and, you know, domestically, uh, the MOD cannot uh, afford to be, and the nation cannot afford the, for the MOD to be, merely a sort of kind of passive recipient of security demands from other parts of uh, Whitehall. We mean, need to be much, much, much more vigorous and active than that. Thank you. Two questions here. Thanks. Um, Deborah Haynes from The Times. Um, in terms of this um, head office design programme, um, can you just sort of give a bit of a sense of what, the, what scale of maybe efficiency savings you think you'll be able to make from that um, annually? And you talked about rebalancing. Like, does that mean headcounts reduction in main office, and um, why is the UK the only Western power not to have this sort of defence um, information systems chief that you kind of sort of said? And do you believe that if you can merge um, the, the various IT systems, you'll be able to achieve significant savings and kind of what sort of scale? Thanks. Can you pass the microphone forward, please? Thank you, Isabella Oakshot, political journalist. Um, I'm just interested in, it's a bit of a personal question really, um, how it feels for you as Permanent Secretary to work in the MOD relative to other departments that you've worked in. It's a very different setup, quite a unique setup. And I wondered what the kind of culture shock was for you when you joined, if any. Thank you. Right. Um, uh, in terms of the head off the forms that we're going to go through um, that is work uh, I'm not going to put any numbers on that uh, I'm afraid that is work that uh, we will be doing over the coming weeks and months and there will no doubt be efficiencies that come out of the head office but I'm not quite sure what level they are going to be at the moment. As I said, I mean, over a 10 year period we've got to get £20 billion worth of efficiencies out and the head office will have to make its uh, contribution to that. Equally, the head office doesn't spend anything like as much as other parts of defence, quite self-evidently. So it's going to, it's going to, um, uh, uh, you know, be, be conditioned by that. I mean, I have to say though that it is important that we don't um, uh, under-resource the strategic direction-setting sort of brain of the department. Um, quite the opposite. I'm referring to the previous question about defence. Um, you know, having a bigger policy role—that is—that is really—that is really, um, that is really uh, crucial, and we don't want to under-resource that. Um, in terms of uh, why defence has never had um, a um, CDIO, um, I, I can't answer that question actually. Um, I've been in the job for 15 months, and. Um, it was one of the realisations I made about six months in, and I, I, I don't know what the answer to that is. And we, it, that is not to say, obviously, that we don't, uh, we're not active in this area. There is a very large organisation called ISS based down in Caution. But it's not, it's not um, as close to the centre of defence as I think it needs to be, given the absolute centrality of information and networks in the way that um, you know, defence has to work uh, now. Um, I, I, I think I would rather take issue, and I'm far from being an IT professional myself, about as far away as you could possibly imagine, in fact, actually, but um, uh, 
I, I think I'd probably rather take issue with the idea that you're going to be able to merge huge, great big IT systems. I don't think that's what it's about. I think doing that would be, in its own right, immensely complex, immensely expensive, and fraught with difficulty. What we need to do is to make sure that the joins between them work properly, um, that there are you know, no holes through which um, information or people might fall, um, and that there is a common set of standards which are applied across the whole of the enterprise, and that we are looking at information, as I say, as a strategic resource, partly as a, a vulnerability that we need to be able to protect and to think about it in a much more um, uh, strategic and holistic way, and that's really the role of the CDIO. Um, in terms of um, what it's like to work in the um, Ministry of uh, Defence, it, 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 it is different from any other um, department. Certainly, I've never worked in another department where on my first day on the job, the first person I met gave me a glass of um, rum and cold tea um, <laughs> and told me to drink it down, telling me that it was gunfire, um, which was some Anzac Day thing. I was slightly surprised and dis disappointed the next day that it didn't, hasn't happened ever since. But, uh, um, no, I mean, it, it, does have a, it does have a unique texture and culture, the Ministry of Defence. Um, actually, I haven't found um, military colleagues, uh, you know, either unwelcoming or overbearing or difficult to work with um, or hidebound at all, actually. I think they've, they've been of great, great quality. Um, and I've been amazed at the way in which the civilians and the military really do, particularly on... Uh, the operation side, they really do work absolutely hand in glove. Um, but it is, it is an organisation of, you know, all of uniforms and non-uniformed people together, well over 200,000 people. Um, that presents immense, would present immense organisational challenges in any event. As it is, it's an amalgam of lots of different um, uh, bodies and organisations which have had long, long histories and long, long ways of doing things. And trying to make all of that work together has inevitably leads to sort of, kind of rubbing points and oddities, um, which, are which can be difficult to navigate around and can be difficult to get sort of kind of change moving through. Um, but I've enjoyed it immensely, actually, for the last 15 months. I hope they'll give me at least another 15 months to go. <laughs> uh, okay, I've got two questions uh, at the, just next to you there, yeah, and then behind at the back. Yep, go ahead, sir. Yeah, um, I did three tours of Afghanistan as a mobilised military reservist. I might just skip the name. I'm wondering if you've made any effort or if senior levels at MOD, uniformed and civilian, have made any consistent effort to challenge what strikes me as the rosy, and I would say actually quite seriously over-optimistic kind of vision of the um, ability that the armed forces have to use reservists to significantly supplement the regular military on operations. Uh, just sort of rough figures, it's between 45 and 5% of the effective forces on our peric in Afghanistan were reservists. A uh, very high proportion of those were on base areas. And if you saw, for example, um, the mobilisation process at Chilwell, the Reserve Mobilisation Centre, at least a third, in my experience, of the reservists who turned up there, and they were the keen ones, they were the ones who volunteered for active service, at least a third failed basic fitness tests on their first and often subsequent iterations. And I've seen this with my own eyes. I've seen that it was a minority of us actually doing the frontline jobs as mobilised reservists. We accounted for a very small proportion of the people on the ground. And then we hear these extraordinarily optimistic e uh, estimates of what the military is going to be able to achieve with reservists in the future. I don't see that happening without a major set of changes backed by some quite major investment. Do you want me 
Yep, at the back, yeah. All right, sorry. Um, Mary Tyshevsky, I'm a freelance journalist. Um, I've got two quite small print questions. Um, on um, learning from Chilkut, um, you said not only that the MOD needed to get better at listening to area specialists, but the area specialists ought to get better at communicating their expertise. Um, I think that Iraq experts might feel that they tried quite hard um, before Iraq and that they weren't listened to. Um, how do you intend to improve that? Um, and the other thing is you said you were just in Ukraine um, and you spoke about um, what you called the weaponization of mass migration. Um, and I wondered what you meant by that. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, Reserves, I think that really is a question a bit less for me than it is for uh, the chiefs, but I, I, you know, clearly if the reserves are um, going to be useful, they need to be capable of being deployed in a, at mass. Um, we've made quite a uh, good um, uh, set of steps and progress in um, reserves r recruitment um, and actually that's particularly the case in the civil services as it happens where we've, um, we've done an awful lot actually uh, in the last couple of years to increase the number of reserves who are available but uh, the, the, the points that you make about their readiness to be deployed to the front line are, I, I'm afraid I'm not in a position to be able to answer but I will take it away and I will discuss it with the, particularly with the CGS who is obviously the the most important uh, person there. Um, uh, uh, Chilcott. Um, just from, uh, area so, specialists. Oh, yes. And how, um, how to improve that, and then Ukraine mass migration. Yeah, uh, <coughs> area specialists. Uh, it is certainly the case um, that there were uh, people um, who were um, speaking truth unto power um, in all of these um, uh, recent conflicts um, and were pointing out um, areas where they could go wrong and subsequently often did go wrong. Um, indeed, one of them is quoted in Chilcot um, extensively and he is Peter Watkins who is currently the DG of um, uh, Security Policy. Um, for whatever reason, and I have spoken to Laurie Friedman who is one of the authors of this, th those messages didn't get through as well as they could have done and I you know um, was it a problem with send or was it a, well, a problem on the receive end I suspect it was probably a bit of a, a bit of both it may may have been more on the receive end so it's a fair, fair question Ukraine uh, the um, weaponization of um, mass migration it is one of the things that certain people in NATO worry about. I mean, NATO is not really set up to deal with some of these things, but mass migration across the Mediterranean in particular, obviously, is a hugely destabilizing factor for most uh, NATO nations. And there, are, there is certainly evidence that um, uh, powers such as Russia are not unhappy with the idea of mass migration across the Mediterranean on the basis that it causes NATO members a great deal of political trouble and instability. And um, uh, friends and colleagues in Ukraine last week were pointing out that two and a half million people have been displaced as a result of that ongoing conflict in the, uh, in, in the east of their country. And um, it is uh, very clear to them, at least, um, that one of the effects uh, that Russia seeks to um, uh, uh, get as a result of that is a destabilization of Ukraine with whom they feel that they are in conflict. So that is, that is a view that they have. And the, the, the whole, um, the, the whole uh, idea of either hybrid or sub-threshold type of contest can obviously use a great many different techniques, and that, I'm afraid, I think is probably one of them. Thank you. Further questions? I've got Sue here and then this chap here. Thank you. Um, <clears throat> when uh, I first became a permanent secretary, I asked my experienced colleagues for advice, and uh, they all said, 
Uh, I wish I had acted faster in my first six months, and, and I've spent the rest of the six years regretting that I didn't move faster. So all, all I would say to you is 15 months in and a very ambitious culture change, pro change program ahead of you, I kind of want to be reassured that you really mean it, that it's really going to happen. You've spoken about keeping talent in the MOD, but you haven't spoken so much about letting it go and come back or bringing other people in. And I think it is a very strong culture with lots and lots of advantages, but some tremendous pull back to, to what it's used to. So I, I think it's just really offering you the opportunity, because I'm convinced you'll do it, of reassuring me that it's going to happen fast and that it will be some fresh air and innovation into the way the civil servants work. Thank you. Across the aisle. Uh, hi there. Roly Sonnenberg of PwC. Uh, you mentioned the very long-term nature of some of the big heavy equipment programs, um, and I guess there's a huge amount of money gets channeled, you know, public sector money gets channeled through defence into industry. Um, I'd like to know if you've got any thoughts around any changes in uh, defence industrial strategy or the posture around that post-Brexit. Okay. Okay, well, in terms of getting on with it, I mean, I absolutely do accept the point about um, uh, wanting to move fast as possible. Um, in an ideal world, I think I would have probably wanted to have done some of the things that we're now proposing to do a bit faster, but the MOD is a very strong culture. Um, and I didn't have a defence background, so it's a question of making sure that you're um, certain um, of your ground. Um, we do let people go, actually, quite a lot of the time. Um, many of our best people... The trouble is some of them don't <laughs> come back. Um, and um, we are not very good at welcoming... Uh, um, different uh, voices and experiences um, from outside um, the department and I am you know unusual in that I don't really have a defense background in the department I don't actually think that it's particularly held me back and, and, and I hope that my colleagues wouldn't think it has either and I think we do need to sort of as you say sort of let the fresh air in let the light in um, a bit more and uh, that is going to be part of the um, part of the uh, uh, part of the uh, work that we are undertaking uh, now. Um, equipment um, and the industry um, post uh, Brexit. I think w we need to be. Um, it's always a balancing act, isn't it? I mean, you've got on the one hand the need to um, retain sovereign capability um, and. Uh, sometimes, certainly at the moment anyway, um, uh, to develop industry strategies around particular types of industries, and obviously shipbuilding is, is, is one of them. Um, and on the other hand, um, a desire on the behalf of the taxpayer to make sure that we're not paying through the nose for kit which is overpriced and, you know, over budget and um, over, over time. And um, that's a very difficult um, balancing act to uh, pull off when you've got basically a you know, monopoly, bunch of monopoly suppliers and a monopsony um, uh, buyer. Um, but we are going to have to make a success of that because some of these industries are very, very important to the UK. The aerospace industry um, is obviously very important to the UK. The, uh, as I say, the... the um, the Prime Minister has made it very clear that she um, wants to make sense of um, John Parker's suggestions for national shipbuilding strategy. Um, so we are going to have to exercise a great deal of imagination and sort of kind of uh, uh, thoughtfulness about making sure that that works. And I am a bit concerned that um, uh, Brexit may not at all be playing in the in favour of some of our companies, given how they have historically operated with some of their European partners. And I think that you can begin to see um, already a couple of um, straws in the wind where sort of kind of French and German industry partners in particular are sort of kind of looking more towards each other than they are obviously looking towards um, some of uh, the British counterparts. The obvious 
the, the, the obvious counter to that is that we have capabilities and skills and um, technicians and technologies in the UK that people actually just can't afford to do without when, it's, when we're talking about some very important pieces of uh, military equipment. And I'm sure that will be um, main line of defence. But it may be that we need to um, start... Um, upping, in fact I think it is the case, we are going to have to slightly change the way in which we go about our bilateral engagements with our other countries, go about selling British um, you know, the, the capabilities of British companies to um, uh, you know, foreign companies maybe we have to go into different types of partnerships in order to make sure that those, um, those skills do get um, maintained and uh, sustained because these are very, 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 very expensive bits of kit and it's quite difficult to imagine that um, a single country is going to be capable of supplying so much of a market for it that actually, so we are going to have to do that and if Brexit makes it imperative to change some of those interactions then that's what we'll just have to do and government will support the industry to do that. Thank you. So I think we've covered a fantastic amount of ground today, not only managing uh, defence but also uh, UK defence strategy, uh, industrial strategy uh, and how it felt to arrive and the culture shock of, 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 of uh, being presented with gunfire on your first day. Um, so uh, please join me uh, in thanking Stephen Lovegrove.